chapter 5. And we're going to close it up here in Thessalonians this morning. And let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, I thank you that as we come to your word this morning, uh, this isn't just a textbook from which we're trying to get some wisdom on life. This is the living word of God. You spoke it, Lord. Men wrote it down as your spirit led them and directed them. And so, Father, this morning we want to treat it as such, your living word. And we pray this morning, God, that you would just, by your spirit, unfold uh, the truth that is in your word and pierce each one of our hearts, Lord. Uh, Correct us, rebuke us, teach us, Lord. Encourage us. We pray, God, that the the living word would just be, uh, that the written word would make the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, alive to our hearts this morning. And so, Lord, we just give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right on. Well, we're finally here at the end of... uh, First Thessalonians, and uh, as we've mentioned, as we've been cruising through this, that this uh, one of the themes of this book, two, two real themes, uh, the first one is Christ, Christ's coming, his second coming, and the second one is just maturity and growth. And so last week, as we were, uh, you know, sharing testimonies from uh, the trip to Israel, We just came to this text and it it spoke about the day of the Lord. And now chapter 5 continues in the second half, verse 12, we're going to pick it up. And just with this picture in mind that the day of the Lord is coming, that Christ is coming again, Paul as he shuts things down and wraps up this letter is just going to give some practical um, results that should be present in our lives for living expectantly in regards to the coming of Christ. And as we're going to see as we get into this, he's going to kind of deal with things that, that touch on kind of points of, that could be conflict within a church, that areas of potential conflict. Now we know as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians this, that this was not a church in conflict. This was a healthy church. This was a church that was doing really well. They were a model church. Reports about this group had gone out throughout uh, their province and traveled far and wide. And Paul had already commended their behavior, and he is continuing to commend their behavior, but he's going to just say some things. They're going to help prevent disruptions in the body of Christ. You know, as I was thinking about it, I remember when I was a kid, I used to have to take cod liver oil. Anybody have to do that? Spoonful of, you know. Yeah, it was awesome. I'm like totally scarred. By those experiences, the worst ones were when, you know, we would just refuse to take it. We'd take those little gelatin capsules and they'd get dropped in a glass of milk and then you'd have to drink the milk. Yeah, you, you can go after my mom for that after, okay? <laughs> Look, not that, no, no, I'm teasing her. You know, not that there was, you know, taking cod liver oil is, is good for you, but there was nothing wrong with us. And my mom would say, that's why there's nothing wrong with you because... You take your cod liver oil. It's preventative medicine, okay? And, uh, you know, with the Thessalonian church, there's nothing wrong. As Paul writes this, there's nothing wrong. It's preventative medicine. It's like, open wide, here it comes, okay? And he's going to give it to them. Let me ask you this. How many years have you gone to church? How many more than f- five years? Hands up. How many more than 10 years? More than 15 more than 20. Okay, more than 30. Let's, let's make it bigger. 
More than 40. People who've gone more than 40 years, more than 50 years. Okay, now I'm going to ask you how old you are. No, just kidding. Okay, look at Church is complex. If you've been around kicking around for a little while, you'd learn that about church, right? I mean, in its purest form, as we look at the scripture, as we read about the Thessalonians, as if we went to uh, the model that's laid out for us in the book of Acts, we see that in its, its pure form, church is beautiful. You know, win the lost, disciple the saved, uh, you know, go for it. But there's a problem with church, and it's people. <laughs> it's people. If you've kicked around for a while, you know that a church is full of people, and what makes church complex is people. Church, in its essence, is simple. You know, we got all sorts of different personalities here. If we went around, you know, we have friendships because we share Christ. But, you know, personalities, different types of personalities, we have leaders and we have followers. We have weak. We have the strong. We have some that are optimists. The glass is half full. We have some that are pessimists. The glass is half empty. There's the cynical. There's the gullible. I mean, there's every type of personality within the church. And we are all learning in Christ, as the body of Christ, as those who have been purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and brought into the family of God and the kingdom of God, uh, we're, we're learning to, to coexist and to live and to serve the purposes of the kingdom together. Uh, we're learning how to work with one another, how to love one another, how to encourage one another and build one another up. And so Paul's going to just talk about the cod liver oil kind of stuff as he wraps up this letter. And first, he addresses leaders, and he addresses followers. He says this in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. So first of all, he gives a quick instruction on how to relate to your letters, Thank you, uh, to your leaders. Thank you very much for that, by the way. That's, I appreciate that. That's a, that was a blessing this morning. Look, you know, I would say this, the, start, the starting point of relationship within the church is this, to recognize that you're family. Do you see what he says? Brothers, recognize you're one family. You know, you know what they say about family? Well, they say you can pick your friends. You're stuck with your family. We're stuck with one another. You know, and, and it's just, it's, it's an interesting thought when you think about it that way because we live in a culture where we're so consumeristic when it comes to church. I mean, it's like people can change churches like they change their underwear sometimes. You know, they just trade churches on a whim, trade leaders on a whim. But the, the starting point of health is to recognize that, that you are a family. You know, I was thinking about it. Every family has kind of a, a weird uncle in their family. <laughs> You got one of those weird, weird, weird uncles? I got three of them. No, just kidding. No, every family has dysfunction. And families, when, you, when you're part of a family, you know, I look at my three kids, each unique in their personalities, each unique in their interests. They learn to get along and love one another because first and foremost, they're family. They're siblings. They got a relationship. And so Paul's starting point is this, your family and so he says, respect those who labor among you. Uh, respect means this, know your leaders, actually. That's what it actually means, to know your leaders. Esteem them. Know who they are. You know, it's got that sense of esteeming them, but it doesn't mean to put your, your leadership on a pedestal. And listen, I'll warn you, if you ever put me on a pedestal, um, I will quickly let you down. 
Leaders will do that. It's not put them up on a pedestal, not esteem them in that sense, not deify them because they will fail you, but get to know them, esteem them, understand that they are people. Now, when you think about it, there's, there's kind of, there's other alternatives that churches can take in regards to their leadership, attitudes that they can have. You know, one could be ingratitude or another could be contentiousness. You know, contention, I, I just think about it, when you look at church and we talk about the makeup of church, some forms of church government just breed a, a culture of contention. It's like the people versus the pastor. And it's like you have to set up groups and boards and different things to mediate between the two. And we forget that we're the family of God, that there's shepherds and there's sheep. And so, you know, there's, you could take that attitude of contention. You know, Paul, Paul, you know, the other one is ingratitude. But Paul apparently, you know, as he talked about leaders, lists this kind of what they're called to do here. Laboring, leading, admonishing. Those are just the temp- typical, normal uh, work of the ministry, function kind of things. And it's, it's in the present tense, meaning this, that uh, these characteristics of laboring and leading and admonishing are to be uh, habitual activities that leaders go about and do. It's not sporadic, but it's something that a leader should be consistent in. You know, I was thinking about it. anybody could be a flash in the pan, man. Any, anyone. You know, we've all seen those ministries where leadership busts out of the starting gate with tremendous voraciousness and power. But look, ministry is not about the start. It's about the finish. The goal is not the start. The goal is the finish line. You know, I, I, I was thinking, as I was just contemplating this, I was thinking about ministry, and, you know, I wish I could say ministry was a slice of pie. Mmm, pie. Um. But, you know, in certain, in certain aspects, ministry gets tougher the longer you serve. You know, the start versus the finish. There's just different aspects when you run a race. You know, it, as you come out of the start, it, it is about voraciousness and power and about setting the pace. But then as you get going, it's about endurance and, and keeping the mental focus and the relationship between leaders and followers in the church is something that is very susceptible and easy to strain, as we all know, if you've kicked around church very long. And so, as Paul talks about this here, the, the, the salve, the ointment, the lip balm, so to speak, is this, love. He says, be at peace amongst yourselves. You know, whenever you find division and dissension in a church, there you find sin and selfishness. You'll find it in the leadership or you'll find it in the people or you'll find it in both. And peace, be at peace amongst yourself means this. Let there be tranquility in the house of God. Harmony, freedom from strife. It's as we submit to one another and as we submit to the Lord and love that we grow in relationship and we... uh, Learn to live with one another and live for God with each other. So he talks to the the leaders and the followers, but then he addresses the weak and the strong. He says this in verse 14. And I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, 
Be patient with them all. Uh, again, you know, the, the starting point of the strong helping the weak is we're family. We're fa- I, it's something funny happened yesterday. Uh, we, were, we were in a dressing room for a hockey game, and, uh, you know, there was a family there, and they had their three kids there, and one was goofing off, and, and uh, he was going to get himself hurt. And the parents said, well, I guess it's just natural selection. I thought, wow. Wow, man. I'm so glad I don't think I come from an ape, but I'm created in the image of God and made for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives have purpose and meaning. And, uh, you know, we don't just cut the weak off in the family of God. It's not natural selection. Paul says the strong come alongside and they help the weak. It's not a leadership. This is not a leadership. This isn't pastors and elders and deacons. This is everyone. The weak help the strong. It's a family issue. First of all, he says this, admonish the idle. That word for idle refers to, to someone that is out of order. Uh, I mean, the first thing we think of in our culture is, is laziness, and it's definitely in there. Um, but but it, it's speaking of someone who's out of order. It really, this word really has kind of two ideas to it. In the active sense, someone who is idle, and yet they're active, is someone who's unruly. They're disruptive. They're insubordinate. In the passive sense of the word, such persons are not doing what they should. Thus, they're lazy. They're not doing what they ought. And so he says this, admonish them. Come alongside those that are idle and admonish them. Bring them along. He also says, encourage the faint-hearted. You know, some, some translations, uh, instead of faint-hearted, say feeble-minded. But Paul's not talking about here about, it, it, it really has nothing to do with mental capability, but rather the attitude of the heart and the attitude of the mind. And so someone who's faint-hearted is a person who's timid. Or literally, literally, this word could be translated, they have a little soul. And it speaks of a personality trait of one who, is, who could be easily discouraged by particular events. You know, we've seen different things that Paul's talked about in the book of Thessalonians. You know, he's talked about the death of fellow Christians. He's talked about persecution from non-Christians. He's talked about attempting to sometimes live according to the law and failing to do it. He's talked about himself not being that there wasn't an evangelist present with them. He's talked about various trials and temptations. Look, there's all sorts of, I mean, the list could go on. If we were just to, to pull the room and say, what discourages you? There's all sorts of things that can cause us to be faint hearted, little sold. Sometimes faint heartedness is to do uh, as much to do with the result of being too inward focused rather than having the upward look in your life towards the Lord. You know, whatever the difficulty, whatever it is, the direction and the instruction from Paul is this. The church is to attempt to encourage those who are faint-hearted. You know, I have, I have someone in my life who uh, we text back and forth all the time and yap about all sorts of stuff. And on a regular basis, I text them this. Knees down, chin up. Assume the position of prayer, my friend. Get right, man. 
Get down on your knees and get your heart focused. Get your eyes set where they should be. Find strength in the Lord. Admonish the faint-hearted. He says, help the weak. The weak here, um, you know, speaks of those who are in need of help. It's, it's actually a real general, general word in, in the Greek, and it speaks of both the, it has a, both a physical meaning, but a spiritual meaning as well. It can, it can signify people who lack strength or who are physically ill, going through sickness, but as well, it speaks of those who are spiritually weak, spiritually immature. And he says, help them. I, I, as I just think about that, I, I'm reminded of the story in Acts uh, chapter 3 where Peter and John are going to the temple after Pentecost and being filled with the Holy Spirit and going up to the temple at the time of prayer. The scripture tells us, Acts chapter 3, that they met a crippled man. He had been crippled uh, from birth and he was there at the, the gate called Beautiful and he was begging as the crowds went in to worship the Lord. He was there begging, trying to make a living. And as Peter and John went by, Peter said, look at us. The scripture says that the man looked at them expecting to receive something from, expecting some money, gave them his full attention. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And you know what it says in that story? That Peter took the man by the hand. He took hold of his hand And he helped him up. And as he stood instantly, the Lord strengthened that man's feet and ankles. They became strong. And he walked and he leaped and he jumped and he praised God. You help the weak. That means this. You take them by the hand. You hold fast to the weak. You don't let them go. And so Paul says, you who are strong, take hold of the weaker believers and help them to stand in the Lord. That's a sense. He also says this, be, be patient with them all. Patience. You know, I was thinking about raising a family again. It takes patience to raise a family. It takes patience to raise and train a child. Now, like I mentioned earlier, you know, every one of my three kids, all slightly different. And, and as a parent, you know some of the values and the things that need to be instilled in your kids, but it's not a one-size-fits-all as you train them. I mean, kids need a different hand this way and their personality needs a different direction this way once in a while. And, and you have to tailor the training to their personality, tailor the training to their strengths and to their weaknesses. Sometimes one of them needs more of hands-on. Sometimes it's a simple instruction and then go, run, go do it. Sometimes it's a gentle hand. Sometimes it's, Pull your bootstraps up, kid. And so with patience, you apply (laughs) sucre to the soul. That's the idea of what Paul... Be patient with them all. With patience, apply what is needed to the soul of those of other people in the body of Christ. And the challenge is always this, is to keep your motives in check. Keeping your motives in the right place. That's why Paul says this in verse 15. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You know, in the church, I mean, um, amongst us, we're, we're, 
dealing with people, individuals, each one of us who have different hurts, different things going on in our lives. But also in church, sometimes we deal with people who hurt others. Not only they hurt themselves, but they lash out and hurt others. And you know, when you're on the receiving end of being hurt by another believer, I mean, vengeance can be a natural reaction to being offended, to suffering at the hands of someone else. But Jesus, I mean, I want to remind you this morning of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Look, when we're hurt, vengeance can be a natural, retaliation can be the natural reaction. But in the family of God, in life in general, our pursuit is to do good. To be active both towards those who are in the family of God and those who are still on the outside of the family of God. Now the next group of kind of teachings, sayings, exhortations, these kind of little one-liners that Paul is going to give, they're, they're, they're really general. It's like, wow, I don't know why those are there. It's just kind of like rapid fire. Ding, 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 ding. He sends these, these little one-liners out. And um, if you try to find the logic that connects them, I don't think it's kind of obscure. I don't. But each one, I would say, does this. It deals with inner attitudes that we can pack in our hearts. If you th- as we think about it, I mean, the inner life shapes the outer attitude. The inner attitude of the heart shapes the outer life. And so these things that Paul says, they're just simple little imperatives, kind of exclusively individualistic in their sayings. And, but they're not just personal. They're corporate things, corporate things that we can take in as a church. So he kind of is talking about, I would He's kind of talking to optimists and pessimists. Look at verse 16. He says this. Rejoice always. You know, Paul was singing the praises of joyful worship. You know, there's a, there's a concept. Joyful worship. Why? Why should we joyfully worship? Because our worship is directed towards the one True God to whom the church owes ceaseless praise. You know, what's the opposite of rejoice? I would say it's this, to mourn. I mean, if you showed up here this morning expecting a funeral, I mean, that would not be good. Look, you know, I encourage you, develop this attitude that that shows up to the house of God, ready to worship, with joy, with thanksgiving, with the shout of praise, as the psalm says. But it doesn't just exist for the hour and a half that we meet, or sometimes two hours and 15 minutes, like last Sunday, that we meet. But look, it's throughout all of our lives and our, and our week and every part of the day. Rejoice always. 
See, when God's people gather, there should always be an optimistic atmosphere of joy, of thanks, of praise. That should characterize the assembly of the believers, the church. Joy, thanksgiving, praise. Rejoice always. Not sometimes. Not when you feel like it. Not when the worship team manipulates your emotions. Not when the, the directive of some uh, leader, you know. Uh, not because the sun's out. Not, it's just always. Rejoice always. Continuous, reoccurring activity for the blood-bought, regenerate person. Purchased with the blood of Christ. Rejoice always. You know, Paul in his letters actually frequently talks about joy. It's, it's a characteristic of a healthy Christian life. Oh, I thought it was a sour face that was a characteristic. No, it's not a bitter heart, not, not a, a gloomy, holier-than-thou attitude, not a sour face. It's, it's joy that is a characteristic of a healthy Christian life. I think it says in the Proverbs somewhere that a smile on the face is like good medicine to the heart. And you know, joy is something that is produced by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And so I, you know, maybe I'd ask you this morning and just at that simple instruction, rejoice always. How's your heart? Maybe you need to smile a little more. You know, the scripture says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Feeling weak? Rejoice always. It's an imperative, a command. Say, Joy, are you serious? Do you know what I'm going through? You know what my week's been like? It was all I could do to get to church this morning. I would say this, look, when the scripture tells us to rejoice always, when we ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. The question is not, do you know what I'm going through? The question is this. Do you remember what you were redeemed from? The, the question is this. Do you know what you were purchased with? The blood of Jesus. The question is this. Do you know what you're destined for? In the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, a Christian's joy does not, it's not the result of his circumstances. But the, the, it's the, our joy is the result of the blessings that are ours because we are blood purchased people of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are children of the king of kings. And so, you know, when a Christian remains in, in sadness and in depression, you know, it's really, it's, uh, it's breaking a commandment here. If you think about it, I mean, you know, in some direction or another, when a, when a believer is, is stuck in a place of sadness and depression, it reveals that there's, there is some sort of internal mistrust of God happening. Mistrust in his power, uh, mistrust in his redemption, mistrust in his forgiveness, mistrust in his sovereignty, mistrust in his providence. Do you remember what you were redeemed from? Do you know what you were purchased with? Do you know what you are destined for? See, God is worthy of your trust. Not because I say it, because God is worthy of your trust. Let me ask you this this morning. You know, 
What do you need to trust God for? Right now, what, what, what would you say if you were to share, this is robbing me of my joy in the Lord? The finances, you know, a, a relationship, a marriage, a work situation, business, whatever it is, God is worthy of your trust. So trust him and rejoice, not in your circumstance, but in your Lord. Paul says this, pray without ceasing. You know, I have, I have one of those uh, physical makeups that when, when I get a cough, it just kind of sets into my bronchial tubes and I can't ever kick it. I know there's others like that around here. It's like, man, I've had this cough for months and I can't, I can't boot it. What's interesting is Paul's language where he says pray without ceasing is the same idea of having a hacking cough that won't go away. It just, he says this, it should settle into your life and it should never go. Just like a hacking cough, just pray all the time, unceasingly. It's, it's this positive thing. Keep the, rece- keep the phone receiver off the hook. You know, so that, that, that prayer is not something that just gets flipped on and off, but it's just this long, ongoing conversation with the Lord, day in, day out day, night, minute after minute, hour after hour after hour. You know, it's great to have designated time for prayer. You should work on having that and developing that in your life where you, where you take time and meet with the Lord. But at the same time, the receiver should never get hung up. Pray unceasingly. You know, we tend to treat prayer like it's a microwave. Start, stop. <laughs> it's not. It's more like a wood stove. You just keep stoking it. Just keep, keep heating the house. Keep heating the house. Keep heating the house so that it's warm with the presence of God. You, know, you are a house, the temple of the Lord. His spirit lives in you. And so prayer without ceasing, it's like this picture. In my mind, I was thinking about it. It's like keeping the temple warm with communion with, communion with the Lord and with his presence. Verse 18, he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, The two previous commands, which were rejoice always, pray unceasingly, they kind of deal with your time. Always unceasingly. This one deals with your circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. You know, Paul's not instructing us to thank God for evil stuff in our lives, for evil events in the life of the church or in in your personal life. What he's saying is this, that even in the face of circumstances, whatever it might be, our hope remains in Christ. And God continues to work, even though there's different circumstances going on. He is at work in our lives. And so, you know, I say it this way, thankfulness is like a spiritual temperature gauge. You wonder where you're going, how you're doing spiritually? All you have to do is weigh the thankfulness of your heart and your lips and what's coming out of your mouth. You can take your temperature, take your pulse spiritually by checking, am I thankful? You know, ingratitude is a characteristic of being ungodly. Because ingratitude is failing to acknowledge the maker in heaven. You know, Romans chapter one 
speaks of God's wrath coming on the unrighteous. And it says this in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark. Thanksgiving as a Christian is a very important thing. Thank God for everything. Everything. The food on your table, your health, your family, salvation, whatever the circumstance, God is at work in the midst of it. And Thanksgiving is a great way to take your pulse. You ever wonder what God's will is? Well, Paul reveals it really clear to us here. He says, it's this. This is God's will. He just takes all the mystery out of it. And he says, it's this. Prayer without ceasing, rejoicing always, giving thanks in every... That is God's will for you. You know, actually twice in this letter, you remember when we were back in chapter four, uh, Paul talked about God's will. He said this, it's God's will for you that you avoid sexual immorality. We had a great conversation that morning. You should go back and listen to it on the church website. Look, that's God's will for your body that you avoid sexual immorality. But here, he tells you God's will for your spirit, God's will for your heart, God's will for the inner life. And God's will for the inner life is this, prayer without ceasing, rejoicing always, giving thanks in everything, in all circumstances. And so, you know, if if you want to do the will of God, if you want to know the will of God, there's two areas where it's clearly, clearly laid out in Scripture, no ifs, ands, or buts. Moral purity in your body and continual thanksgiving, prayer, and rejoicing in your spirit. It's good stuff. Then Paul talks about the cynical and the gullible, I would say. He says in verse 19, do not quench quench the spirit. So often... Um, in the scripture, the Holy Spirit is, is pictured as fire. And there's an ability to put out fire, to douse the flames with water, to put them out. And, and the idea here, do not quench the spirit, is do not put out the spirit's fire. You know, in the early church and, and even in church today, there's, you discuss the work of the spirit and it, it brings up all sorts of thoughts. You know, we just come from all sorts of different backgrounds here. We got people that come from charismatic end of things. We got people that come from the liturgical end of things in our church. And we got every mix in between. And we got people that don't know where they come from. And there can be a sense of mystery and ambiguity and wonder when it comes to the work of the spirit to revelation that comes by the working of the Holy Spirit. You know, in the, the early church, there were, you know, itinerant preachers who were cruising around. And the church had this setting where it was easy for guys like that to bring conflict by the things that they, they spoke. You know, the church struggled, as you see in different of Paul's letters, to know which leader to follow. They struggled to know which prophet was true. Um, which doctrine was false or, uh, you know, the issue of doctrine and, and ethics and morality and how to balance all of these things. And there was, there was disagreements. And all of those impacted the church and affected their understanding of the gospel. And sometimes Paul and the apostles would have to speak clarity and bring clarity to disagreements and how they were impacting local churches, and how they were affecting congregations. 
And in such a setting, it's kind of, it's easy when you have all these questions and as you're wanting to walk a straight line for God as we want to, when you're wanting to be a church that is biblically based and teach through the word verse by verse and chapter by chapter and be sound in doctrine and all of those things, it's easy to quench the spirit's fire because we're afraid, afraid of stepping to the right or to the left. And of course, the New Testament's full of warnings about false teachers and the things that they taught. Uh, you know, Jesus said, you'll recognize them by their fruit. They'll, they'll lack love. They'll deny the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll teach people to disobey the commands. They'll, you know, contradict the teaching of the apostles and of the gospel. And it's easy to quench the Spirit's fire and not to be open to what the Spirit of God is saying. And so he says this, don't do that. And you know what? I encourage you. Be open to the Holy Spirit. Be open to his working. As a church, I think it's an area of growth that, that we need to grow in. To be sensitive to that which the Spirit is doing. You know, the Spirit prompts us at times. Stop doing what's wrong. Start doing what's right. Prompting us to just do different things, that inner nudge when the Lord wants us to follow his leading. Don't quench the Spirit's fire. Verse 20 says, do not despise prophecies. You know, CTK is a non-profit organization. That's a joke. Do not despise the prophecies. No, exhort, look, when he speaks of prophecies, he's speaking of this exhortation, words of comfort, words that come in a season. You know, maybe the Holy Spirit would give you something, a word of encouragement to share with someone else in the room here. You know, uh, words of exhortation, comfort, words that come in season, and they always exalt the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce said this about this, this verse. He said, prophecy declares the mind of God in the power of the Spirit of God. Never contradicts Scripture. Rather, pro what Paul's talking about here, do not despise prophecies. He's talking about the opening of the mind of God through the Word of God. Uh, you know, and, and we maybe share something with someone as the Spirit leads, and, and we're trained on how to act or how to think or how to order our lives all for the purpose of declaring and bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says, don't dismiss or reject words of prophecy. Don't, don't consider them as something that are not worthy of your consideration. But rather, in verse 21, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Um, that word but, it just, there's this shift here. Here's the positive instruction. Tested. When a word of prophecy is spoken, uh, take it and carefully examine it and see if it applies and if it doesn't. You know, rather than just accept everything, which leads to confusion and error, or rather than reject everything, which just closes us off to the working of the Holy Spirit, the church is to examine everything carefully using the criteria that, that of the word of God. 
using the criteria that Jesus laid out in the scripture, using the criteria that the apostles laid out for recognizing true and false prophets, a careful examination by the congregation as a whole, you know, so that the church can discern what is good and what is right. So that the church can also discern that which is false. Or, you know, that's which claims to be prophetic, yet is just a, a veil of evil and of error. Test all things. And what does he command them? Hold on to the good. And in the next verse, avoid every kind of evil. Hold on to the good. Avoid the evil. Test everything by the word of God. You know, the great example for us from the scripture is... Uh, Acts chapter 16, 17, somewhere in there, the Brians, who Paul said were of noble character because they took everything and they waited with the word of God. You know, Paul doesn't want us, and God does not want us to be cynical, okay? We're not cynical towards uh, words from the Lord. Like we're going to treat prophecy with contempt, but neither are we to be gullible. Not cynical and not gullible. We don't accept everything that some so-called prophet would speak without weighing it carefully and determining that it's a true word from God. He says in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. In fact, some other translations or the idea of what is being said is the very abstain from the very appearance of evil. The idea being, look, as God's people, we're to have a more noble character. You know, they say even an old barn looks good with a fresh coat of paint. The very appearance, we're to deal with that, you know. You hit that on different levels as followers, you know, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you know, we're to avoid the appearance of evil. What that might look like for you, I, I don't know. You have to apply wisdom. We have an enemy, and I guess the question is, why would we give the enemy ammunition? You know, the, the church can have a terrible reputation. as Don't give him ammunition. Avoid the appearance of evil. Then he says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word sanctify just means set apart. May you be set apart completely to God's purposes through and through. May God carry on his work in you to the finish in your spirit, in your soul, in your body. May you be kept. I, I like that. It's beautiful. Kind of uh, brings up thoughts about the nature of man and what it is to be a man, our anthropology, you know. What does it mean? It's a spirit, soul, and body. I just think, wow. You know, we're a trinity created in the image of our God. He's a trinity. Father, spirit, and son. And thus we are too. But it's not so much that Paul is emphasizing that. He is, what he is stressing here is the idea of our wholeness. That God wants you to be whole. In your body, in your spirit, and in your soul. He wants you to be whole. You know, the spirit is just that, that highest and most 
unique part of us that allows us to communicate with God that, comes, that is dead in humans, that is dead in people until they enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and are born again. Once we were dead, now we're made alive. And the Spirit is that place where God communicates to us by His Spirit, where we need to follow His nudgings and His leading. The soul is that part of man where, you know, I always relate the soul to the mind. It's where I'm conscious and where uh, the battle for the flesh and the spirit seems to be played out as I choose to follow the Lord or not. The body, of course, is the flesh, the, the the physical nature and the makeup of who we are through which the inner person the spirit should express itself. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. God wants you to be set apart and this is what God wants for you. Peace in all of those places. Isn't that beautiful? In the spirit and in the soul and in the body. He doesn't want you to have discord. He doesn't want you to be broken. He wants you whole. He wants his people to be well in their being. You know, I, I think of the Old Testament sacrifice, which we know the scripture commands us that when the, the people of Israel brought a sacrifice to the Lord to, the, to be offered to him, they were to bring an unblemished, uh, a sacrifice that was without spot, a sacrifice that would be acceptable to Yahweh. And God is doing this. He has made you an acceptable sacrifice through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is increasingly bringing wholeness to your spirit, soul, and body. Verse 24 says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. See, God's not whimsy, man. He's not whimsical. He's not arbitrary. He is powerful. He is sovereign. And he is capable of doing that which he has promised. He is the God who is faithful. And he has called us into fellowship with the son. And if you've come to faith and repented of your sin and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your future is secure in Jesus Christ. The God who has called you is faithful and he will surely do it. Verse 25, Paul says, brothers, pray for us. Kind of as he wraps it up, he gets a little personal. Pray for us. And, you know, I would encourage you, pray. I appreciate it, Brian, just plugging Wednesday night prayer. It's a time we pray for one another's needs, but we also pray for this church. Pray for people. Pray about situations that we know. He says, I put you, uh, sorry, verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. A hug or a handshake will do. Side hug will do. Please don't kiss me. I love you all. No. <laughs> Uh, that's great. Now make sure it's holy. Be one of brothers, the brothers with a holy kiss. I mean, you know, in different cultures, that's, that's, a, that's definitely a different, you know, the way that they greet. In our culture, not so much. So, you know, a handshake will do it, CTK. And it hugs great too. Verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all of the brothers. Man, we're fulfilling that word right there this morning as we read this letter. We're fulfilling what Paul asked to be done almost 2,000 years ago. Verse 28. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you.